your Bibles, please turn once again to the 8th chapter of Romans. We finished it up this morning, Romans chapter 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans in the New Testament if you're looking. It's a funny thing to live by a promise, but we do. We bank everything on a word that's been spoken to us. Not a word spoken by us. Here Paul brings us to the most valuable implication really of justification by grace through faith alone. This great doctrine we confess together. The message of the gospel for everyday life. He answers the question that arises from our deepest fears and knowledge about ourselves. What can separate us from this God and His love? That's what Paul is after. Let me pray. Our God, I ask that you would not just be with me, but overshadow me for the sake of preaching your word. God, without you, I am nothing, and my words will mean nothing. So, Lord, I pray that you would be with me and enable me to preach this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would enable every person in this room, regardless of their age or their understanding, to hear and to believe these great things we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 31. He says, What then shall we say to these things? Three times already in Romans, in 4, 1, 6, 1, and 7, 7. And then actually two more times after this in 9, 14, and 30. Paul uses this rhetorical question to move into the implications of what he's been teaching up to that point. Here, he means to bring this discussion of really the the meat of the letter, the, the, the discussion of justification by grace through faith alone apart from works, the effect that's meant to have on us since we continue to struggle with sin and suffering to an end. He's bringing that to an end. So what are these things In verse 31, what then, in light of verses 29 and 30 mainly, should we say to the fact that even though we were foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and called and justified and glorified, we still struggle with the ongoing weakness of our flesh and all the various sufferings of living in this present world which was subjected to futility by God and exists in the bondage of corruption. What do we as Christians say to these things? We remember what the gospel promise tells us. All of this means in verse 31. That God is for us. For us in His Son Jesus Christ. And we ask, if God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. No one. You remember these words, believer. No matter what the enemy The accuser whispers in your ear about you, even if, especially if it's true. No matter what your family might say, or your co-workers, or your friends, or strangers, or ruling authorities, or enemies may, may say about you, God is for you. For you. He's on your side. And He's not for us, like in some childish sense of, of approving of everything we do. Or want to do. It's not like that. Or liking everything we like. Supporting us even when we're out of our minds. Or enslaved to our 
selfish and sinful desires. Not like that. He is for us in the sense that He wills. His sovereign will is to accomplish our salvation in spite of all the things that threaten it. He is not against me because I still struggle with sin, is what that means. He is not against me because I'm weak. He's not against me because I can't seem to understand His ways all the time. His wrath that was against me has been removed by His Son, whom He sent to take it away. For He is both just and merciful. This sentence doesn't mean something cheap, right? Like, like God claps for me when I, you know, finally accomplish something, finally bench press 225 or really nail that song or, or nail that outfit or whatever it is nowadays that makes people feel complete and whole. It means God will make certain that the futility and bondage and corruption of this world and the schemes and lies of the evil one and the weaknesses and sins of my own flesh will not keep, will not be able to keep His salvation from being accomplished in me and for me. None of these things can undo our justification. None of these things will make God regret adopting us. In fact, He's so sovereign over me and over this world that He will make all of these things that could kill me. He'll make them His servants for my salvation. We remember from verse 28, God is for us. Believer, He is for us. And if He is for us, it begs the question, who can be against us? No one. Not successful. Satan himself is against you. Make no mistake. His minions, his servants, they're all against us. The world is against us. They don't want us to be here. We're aliens here. We're sojourners here. The powers that be are against us. They are. You need to believe this. They're against you. They don't care about you. You're a tool to them. You will be betrayed by friends. You'll be betrayed by family. Most people and things in this creation are against you. But their opposition to you is pointless because God is for you. Verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? There's a hint here. Way back in Genesis 22, God had called Abraham to sacrifice His only son Isaac. Most of you know this story. The child of promise. And then at the last second, God intervenes. Since it had never been His will that Abraham actually take His own son's life, but to show Abraham the extent to His own commitment to achieve the promise that he himself had made. So Isaac was spared. And God provided a ram in his place for the sacrifice. But when the time came for God to keep that promise, he didn't give up somebody else's son. He gave up his own son and did not withhold him from us. That was always the plan. The one son that would die for the world was God's son. None of our sons. None of us. God did not withhold Jesus. He didn't spare Jesus, but delivered Him up for us all. And the giving of Jesus to us and for us is the rationale for understanding how God now wouldn't withhold anything from us. If He's given us Christ, if He didn't withhold Christ, 
what could he withhold now that would be of greater value than Jesus? Nothing. Jesus was the greatest gift God had to give, and he gave him. Nothing will be withheld from us now. God will most certainly pour out all his blessings on us in the new heaven and the new earth that he's promised to all who believe on Christ. But wait, there's more. Verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So legal language, right? Paul takes us right up into the heavenly courtroom where the judge of all the earth is seated. The accuser is there with his rap sheet of all our sin, every wrong thought, every wrong word, every wrong deed, every good deed left undone. We're guilty. We've confessed to everything on the list, but all the charges against us have been dropped because one has stood in our place, receiving the due punishment for all our sin, paying the full debt we owe. And now, because of that, no one can bring any charge against us that can stick. They have no venom, no weight, nothing. Why? Because it is God who justifies. The salvation of Revelation 12.10 has come. It is fulfilled. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. No one can any longer bring a charge against God's elect. Not a charge that can condemn us. They can make charges all day. The charges mean nothing now. For the one who justifies is the one who's been sinned against. Nobody else holds your rap sheet. You understand that? It's God to whom we must give an account. And if God has dropped the charges, they're dropped. They're gone. If He has acquitted us in Jesus Christ and has for His sake granted us both full forgiveness and total righteousness, then we have been justified. Indeed, we have been made right with God, by God. And notice it's here. It's at this point. This is so important for understanding the flow of this passage. It's here that Paul brings election back into the text after he addressed predestination back in verses 29 and 30, the biblical teaching that God's children have been chosen by God. He asks, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? So he wants that word to have meaning for us, to assure us, not to make us doubt, but to assure us. If election was a doctrine, if it was a doctrine that taught person A is chosen and person B is not, how could it ever be used as a means of assurance for anyone? Why would you ever use that word for assurance if what the word meant is when you read it, you might be, you might not? Well, how do I know? Read those authors. How do I know that I'm elect? Where do I look? I don't look back to the cross. I look inside. Am I doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Do I care about H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P? Am I doing enough? If I'm doing enough, if I'm working enough, if I'm serious enough, then maybe I can think uh, these promises might be for me. I might be an elect one. I seem to show all the signs. Praise God it's not that. Praise God that's not what this beautiful doctrine is. How could it ever be a means of assurance for anyone if that's what it was meant to do? 
We do not look to what is seen. In any way, in any sliver or context of life, we don't look to what is seen to know what is true. Ever. For anything. We walk by faith, not by sight. I don't know I'm saved because I look in the mirror. I know I'm saved because I look to the cross. I look to Christ. What He did. What He says. Which is why election is brought in to comfort us in verse 33. Believer, you have been chosen by God. You are His elect one. Those persons whom Paul says God foreknew and predestined as elect are that because they are in Christ. The chosen one who throughout Scripture is the eternally known, marked out, elect Son and Savior. My chosen in whom my soul delights. God calls His Son the servant in Isaiah. Predestination is God's determination from all eternity that those who are believers in Christ will be saved. That's what it means. Do not be afraid. You are elect. You are predestined to what God has called you to in receiving the promise. It's not so much that individual A or B has been predetermined to come to faith while individual C has not. It's that because a person is in Christ, that one is foreknown, called, predestined, elect. Words like elect when we read them, when we see them. They don't have any weight behind them apart from being in Christ who is eternally chosen of God. In fact, the whole reason for bringing predestination in at this point for his argument on justification is very deliberately to reveal that it's the only reason nothing can separate us from the love of God for us in Christ. That's why it's there. Not our sin, not our weakness, not our futility, not our bondage to corruption, not all that we might suffer here. It can't separate us. Why? Because God has chosen us to receive it. Those whom God has chosen to be His own are safe from all the charges that are brought against them since the judge is also the justifier. Paul basically is expressing the same point in another way in verse 34. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. God places layer upon layer of grace around us in this passage. Who can condemn God's child? No one. Why not? Surely we're all guilty. Everybody could condemn us. Isn't that what he's already said? All have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But someone died for sinners. And the one who died for them is not some well-meaning hero. The one who died, whose blood forgives sins, is Christ, the Son of the living God. Receive Him. If the one who washes away sin and guilt is Jesus, then sin and guilt are gone. They cannot condemn us. The Bible doesn't say, you didn't sin. It says in Christ you aren't condemned for your sin. And more than just dying to forgive us, as though all Jesus really does is give everybody a clean slate to start over with. No, no, no. In addition 
to dying to forgive us, Jesus rose from the dead. You remember in 425, Paul told us that Jesus was raised for our justification. That means we've not only been forgiven of our sins by the death of Christ, but for all who believe we've been made perfectly and fully righteous by the resurrection of Christ. There's literally nothing left that can condemn us. Nothing and no one. God is for us now. He sent His Son to accomplish this. And by the way, that same risen Christ arose and was ascended, exalted to the right hand of God the Father, which isn't a literal little seat beside the big one, but the entire cosmos is the right hand of God since it's the realm of God's reign and authority, which is what it means by His right hand. Everywhere, Jesus is reigning. And everywhere that Jesus is reigning, Jesus is saying of you, believer, that you are justified and forgiven and righteous and adopted and accepted and called and loved and foreknown and elect and all these beautiful things. If you can find a place, a millimeter in all creation where Jesus isn't reigning, there, everything could separate you from His love. But there is no such place. There's J. Gresham Mason that said, there is not one atom over which God does not say, mine. From there, with all authority in heaven and on earth being given to him, he also along with the Holy Spirit in verse 26. That's why we read the word also here is making intercession for us. Do any of us really think that the one for whom the Holy Spirit is interceding and Jesus the Son is interceding could ever possibly be lost? 1 John 2.1 says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's our lawyer. The accuser has nothing left with which to charge you. And the God against whom we've all sinned and have offended has dropped all charges for the sake of His Son who was crucified and risen and has ascended. All Jesus is, He is for you. No one can condemn you. And everyone will try. Even you. So, so far we've learned that God is for us. Therefore, no one can be against us. God has justified us, so no one can bring any charges against us. And Christ has died and risen for us, so no one can condemn us. That's where we stand right now in the passage. Even though our struggle with sin and weakness and futility and bondage and corruption and the suffering that comes from all that is so real and so constant, we are right now grounded so firmly and so deeply by God in Christ that none of that, nothing and no one can separate us from His grasp. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because that's what Paul knows is being asked by his hearers. That's the major concern of even the justified. What is going to cut me off from this? Surely something can undo this. Something threatens it. Paul, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He's talking to Christians. Christians doubt. They, they, we, we don't always believe the gospel. 
We don't believe it's as good as the Bible tells us it is. So Paul is answering questions like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can undo all of this? Is God just, after all, legally bound by his own divine and moral standard that he has to save us and bring us all the way home, even if he doesn't really want to or doesn't really like us or care for us? Is God just doing the right thing from a business standpoint and he's very, you know, benign in all of this? No, he's doing all of this actually because he loves us. And don't hear love like you might love your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I'm not telling you that's not real or your husband or your wife or your children or your parents or whatever it is or your spouse. I'm not saying that's not real. I'm saying don't think of God's love like your love. Don't. Because if you do that, then you will attach all the fears that you have about that love to God and they don't count with God. What if they change their mind? What if I make a mistake and they don't like me anymore, right? So God doesn't, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. Love is not what we feel for God. In this is love, John says in First John. Not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what love really is. God sending Jesus to die for his enemies. That's what love really is. Who shall separate us from that? There's no standard outside of God, like hanging in reality somewhere, that if God is to be good, He has to adjust Himself to or meet that standard if He's going to be called good. God has made all the rules. God sets all the standards. He is accountable to no one but Himself. So He really just loves us because He wants to. So Paul asks, in the middle of verse 35, shall tribulation, will that do it? Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Nakedness would be a weird thing to put on that list. Isn't it? I mean, why, why would we think that would ever separate us from God, not having any clothes on? Well, Paul had been beaten naked quite a few times. Can any of these things that Christians might suffer beat them down so far that they'll finally separate us from His love? Again, that's the major concern in our hearts that Paul is addressing. After all, in verse 36, as it is written, in other words, we're going to suffer these things. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter in this world. And that's what we are in this world. That's what the children of God are down here. We're among the wolves. Nobody questions what happens to sheep in the midst of wolves. Paul had literally been whipped and stripped naked for the name of Christ more than once, bearing all of that shame and pain. He had suffered. He had been hungry and beaten and afraid and in danger. Listen to him from 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 28, talking about his own life. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times. If we could have seen Paul's back, it would have disgusted us. 
five times. It rips one time, rips all the tendons apart, all the muscle tissue off, all the skin off. The man's back literally looked like hamburger. Literally. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. That's at the hands of his own countrymen. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Just floating in the sea. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the, Gen- of, of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often. In hunger and thirst. In fastings often. In cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my concern for all the churches, throw that in there too. Constantly filled with anxiety because the people he's preaching to won't believe the gospel. And his brethren not understanding him. Paul isn't some professor of theology in an ivory tower. Paul knew what questions to ask probably because... He had asked them when he was suffering. Maybe even doubting. Is God for me? Am I really forgiven? Do I still stand condemned? This wretched man that I am, which is what he called himself as a Christian back in 724. Does God really love me? That's what we start to ask when the sufferings mount beyond belief or when we don't understand what we're dealing with in our lives. What's happening to us? Who we are? Will this thing separate me from the love of God? Will this weakness of my flesh... Will this inability to believe, will this sin, is this sin the one that will finally cut me off that I just did? Is is that enough? And God said, all right, that's it. That's 1,093. I'm not doing any more. Not forgiven any more. I'm done with you. Paul quotes Psalm 44, 22 here in verse 36 because he realizes That to be conformed to the image of Christ, which we now know from earlier in chapter 8, is God's purpose and His will for the life of every individual believer. That means being conformed to Him in every way, including all His suffering. In Isaiah 53, 7, Paul makes the connection because the Messiah was what? Led like a lamb to the slaughter in this world. And Paul realizes, since we're being conformed to His image, We are like lambs led to the slaughter also. We understand that Jesus maintained and held it and went all the way, but I'm not Jesus. So where's the line line for me? What separates me from the love of Christ? What, What can't I come back from? What will change His disposition towards me? The question for the Christian is not whether we will suffer. We will We are being conformed to the image of Christ in every way. The question is this. Can that suffering separate us from His love for us in Christ? Because that's how it feels often, doesn't it? To really suffer. It feels as though God has forgotten. If not all out abandon us. Or we're so sick of ourselves or tired with ourselves that we just, we don't even want to try anymore. Verse 37. Yet. In all these things. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In all these things. Not if you avoid all these things. Or on the outside of all these things. 
But in, during, all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So the promise is not that we'll know God loves us because we don't really suffer and we don't really go through hard times. God's word to us is that in all these things, we are what God says we are. In tribulation, in distress, in persecution, in famine, in nakedness, whatever it is, in all that, during all that, I am what God says I am. In Jesus Christ, whose blood has forgiven us and whose resurrection has made us righteous, we've been brought to a glory greater than what Adam lost. Jonathan Grothy writes that those in Christ are returned to a higher height than that from which Adam fell. We are super conquerors. More than conquerors in all these things. The idea would be that you're not a conqueror until you've beaten all those things. That's why you use the word conqueror. But that's not life for us. God doesn't have our assurance hanging out there on a branch far away from the tree. It says, if you get through all this stuff, you can have all that I promised to you. God is saying that while you're hanging on by your pinky, or in reality, he's holding on to you because you've let go, you are more than a conqueror. This, this isn't for your self-esteem. Like, you can just walk around like, I'm more than a conqueror. No, I mean, you can. Just don't, because it's silly. But that's what we are. Literally, in suffering. It's easy to be braggy when you're not suffering. This text, the Bible's not written for that type of attitude. The Joel Osteen attitude. Please don't watch that guy. Please. And don't buy his trash books either. How are we more than conquerors in the midst of all these things? Is that just like Christianese? Right? Do we give the thumbs up with bruises all over? Blood pouring out of our nose? No. What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? It means that I'm not just somehow vaguely spiritually victorious in the midst of my struggles so I can just smile in my suffering. It means that through God's love for me, that is predestined, called, justified, and glorified me back in verse 30. All these things, all of them, all this mess has nothing to do with who I am. Nothing. What I am, what Tony Romano actually is, is what God says he is from his throne. I am not what all these things might do to me or have done to me or might make me. We are not the sum total of the choices we've made. We are to the world. We aren't to God. We reap what Jesus has sown. We reap what Jesus has sown. We are what Jesus has done for us. This world, my flesh, my futility, my weakness, my corruption, my suffering, is those which come because of the wrong things that we do and the wrong things that are done to us often, they don't determine who I am. Christ is standing in my place and I am standing in Christ. 
in that sense, I am what he is. Because I'm in him, I am what he is. Victorious over death, victorious over hell, victorious over the grave, even in the crucible of suffering. The world could do its worst. God was going to raise Jesus from the dead. Period. Just like He's going to raise you from the dead. I thought this would be good news to you. I thought you'd like this. Paul writes so that we read the next verse as the reason for why we should see ourselves as more than conquerors in all these things. Here's why. 4, verse 38. I am persuaded. In other words, this is the conclusion Paul has come to in all this. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. Stuff that hasn't even happened to me yet that I don't even know what it is. Not that either. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. That's the best one shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul not only covers all created reality in these verses, he also gets specific enough for the one struggling too much to believe it. With that last little phrase there. He's saying that nothing in creation and no created thing. Well, that's, that's the same thing, right? But it's for your assurance. Because maybe what you think will cut you off wasn't on that list. And so he's just, he's just like, listen, nothing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Almighty God for us in Christ. All the great powers that can destroy us are there in verses 38 and 39. All the places we could be, all the places where we could suffer, followed by the phrase, nor any other created thing, just for good measure, so that nothing is excluded. Everything listed there is a created thing. I want you to think about that for a minute. Everything that can and may try to separate you from His love was created by God in the first place. And therefore, He owns it. And so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that there's something out there that maybe God hasn't thought of or that you haven't dealt with yet, or this is too obscure for God to take seriously, that it will be able to separate you from His love. It, it, there's nothing, and there's no one. The one who calls things that are not so that they are, this is our God. The one who raises the dead, this is our God. The God who justifies the ungodly, this is our God. There's nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing and no one. So that's the answer. That's our answer to the wind and the waves and the chaos of this world. That's our answer to the accusers roaring and the condemnation of the law of God. And the voices in our heads and the voices in our lives that scream reasons at us. That God can't or won't or will stop loving us. Nothing and no one can separate me from His love. So, ponder 
this day believe how safe in Christ you really are. Ponder it. And if you aren't a believer, you need to know that you can be. Receive the truth of Christ. Repent of your sins. And come to Jesus. You will be accepted. And all of this will be yours. As much yours as it is mine. As much yours as it was for Billy Graham. Or for any other person you can think of. Or for Paul. It will be as much yours as it was Paul's. Do you realize this? So do you want to walk away from God this morning and throw in the towel and quit? Is that where you are? Are you just sure that these words don't apply to you? And here's what you're going to have to do. See, God loves you. He's elected you. He's justified you, adopted you. You're His own. So what you're going to have to do is go to Him and tell Him He's wrong. And these words don't apply to you. Tell Him that. that. That's what you need to do. Go tell Him. Go tell Him He's not powerful enough. Go tell Him He's not strong enough. Go tell Him that His hands can't reach into your fire and pull you out or He'll get burned. Go tell Him that. See how that works out. And by the way, I don't mean He's going to blast you for it. He's just going to pull you in closer to Himself. The prodigal son was a son when he had his face ear deep in pigsty. So just get up and stop it and come home. Because the other option is you could just believe the gospel. That nothing and no one can separate you, including you. Get the tattoo if you need it. I'm thinking about it. Nothing in your And get it backwards so that when you look in the mirror, it reads right. For this is all true. Every word of it. All day long. Christ for you.